2011. You can go ahead and open to Exodus 3. And uh, you'll have to pray for me. I'm chained to a microphone, which I don't like and I'm not used to. But praise God, you can work through everything. So tell me when you're there. If I gave you a piece of paper and a clip, be very careful about leaving the service. If you do leave the service then uh, hand it to somebody next to you and ask them to fill in for you. Okay? So in Exodus 3, I'd like to start with the first verse. Is that okay with y'all? You seem quiet. Okay. First verse is alright. Now Moshe was tending, or Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. What a mouthful the first verse is. It's an amazing thing, and particularly it's amazing in Hebrew, where the NIV says, to the far side of the desert. In Hebrew, this is a word called ahar. And ahar in Hebrew literally means the other side, the back side of. And here's what you need to know about ahar. It's wherever you're not. So it's not possible for you to say, there's ahar, or there's ahar, or here's ahar. Ahar means that it is on the other side of something that you must pass. So Moses had to walk through a place that the Bible describes as a desert. Y'all can speak to me. Tell me what you think of when you think of a desert. Hot. Dry. Hot. Dry. No water. No water. Arid. Sand. Those kind of things. He had to go to the far side, the other side of this. Well, what direction is it? Ahar really doesn't have to do with the direction. It has to do with crossing over something in any direction to reach the other side of it. And where did he arrive at? He arrived at a mountain called... You can speak. It's in your Bibles. We're going to get out of this lecture attitude, this sit and soak attitude. You are a community of believers. And in any other century, when Judaism merged with Christianity or Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, the people brought the message. The synagogue ruler's job was to make sure when they quoted the word, they quoted it correctly. When they talked about its application, they applied it correctly. So tell me, saints, what mountain did they come to? Horeb. Horeb. Horeb is Hebrew. And when you say Horeb, it also means something. Interestingly enough, it means all the things that define a desert. It's desolate. It's a wasteland. It's a place that is dry. All of those things define the word Horeb. Now, I want you to think about something. If we're going to take a long journey, if we're going to cross something, if we're going to have to go to Ahar, Ahar is wherever you're not. Why would you go there? Because there's something good over there, right? I mean, why do you drive 12 hours to go to Disney World? And why do you endure whatever you have to endure? Because when you get there, you're hoping that it's good. But what is Horeb called? <laughs> Might as well say it's more of the same. Right? We walked all the way across the desert. We got to the far side of a dry, arid, arid wasteland with nothing but sand. And we came to a mountain called Desolate Wasteland. Horrible. It's like, I don't know. When I was a kid, my mother and father were moving us from California. And I was excited as a new place. And do you remember the feeling, Mom, when we showed up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Like, Really? <laughs> uh, where's the ocean? <laughs> you know, uh, why do the people talk so funny? <laughs> yeah, uh, they thought we talked funny in California, honestly. 
So this place that Moses is taking, and remember he has a flock, he's got sheep with him, is dry, arid, wasteland. And he shows up at a mountain that means a dry, arid wasteland. But how about this next word? Mountain of God. Why mountain of God? It is an amazing thing. We're looking back on Horeb in history, and the writer of this is writing after the events take place. Moses didn't write Exodus before he experienced Exodus. Moses experienced Exodus, and then years later wrote about it. Can you say amen to that? Am I telling yeah. the truth? Yeah. Yeah. So in hindsight, he could look back at Horeb, the desolate wasteland, and what could he say about it? That was the mountain of God. But I bet when he was traveling there, it didn't feel like the mountain of God. No. I bet when he was on the way there, he thought his name probably lived up to its reputation. What a desolate wasteland. What a strange place. I love the verse that begins verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I'd like to talk to you about that for a minute. Where do we expect God to appear to us? Well, if you're an American Christian, you expect God to appear to you wherever they have the finest program, the nicest building, the most polished, pretty people. And there are no problems. And that is where our God appears to us. That's an interesting thing. Because Psalm 34 teaches something totally different. Would you like to read that? Yeah. Okay, well, I hope you're telling me the truth. We'll come back to Exodus. Keep your finger there. Here comes Exodus thir or Psalm 34. Look at Psalm 34, starting in uh, verse 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. Where does the Lord come to meet with them? Where are they? In the midst of troubles. Well, how about the next verse? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Who is it that the Lord's looking for? The pretty perfect people? No. Those who are broken. Those who are crushed in spirit. What's verse 19 say? A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. This seems to say that places like the mountain of God are surrounded by trouble because that's the condition in which God likes to meet with His people when they're surrounded by trouble. Now tell me something. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. Hey, let me do it a different way. Surely all of you know someone who has spent at least one day in jail. Right? Can you nod your heads? Yeah. yeah. It's easier for Americans to nod their head than speak in church. You, know? you don't have to pass out all over the world. People interact during church services. It's only in the most Caucasian-riddled environments that we don't see that. Uh, the one place I've traveled in the world where the churches were more stoic and dead than, than here was Germany. You know, Every once in a while you got to... You know, that was the equivalent of a Southern Baptist amen, you know? And they don't know what to do with charismatic people. Listen, the thing about our God is that He meets with us in places that are difficult. Because like the relative or you or whoever it was that you knew who went to jail, this is often the time in which people for the first time in their life begin to cry out for help. Why do they know they need help? Because they're in trouble. This is a perfect place to meet with the Lord. 
One of the problems with America is we have, we have stripped away everything that might cause us trouble. I mean, has anybody in here had to kill their food lately? You know? My little girl actually thinks that hamburger comes from Walmart. She has no idea that hamburgers do not like grow out of the aisle at Walmart. We're so insulated, we don't even have to kill the food that we eat. We don't see difficulty, and there's a real danger. Something happens to us. We begin to think that the world that we live in right here is the world. And friends, it's not. All over the world, the revivals that are happening are happening in places where there is trouble. We spend our whole life trying to avoid it, and it is where God meets with us. Difficult, dry, arid places where you know that you need Him. That's the goal. By the way, there's probably no bigger problem that the church is going to face in the next two centuries than Islam. Did you know that 98% of all missionaries that have ever gone out from this country went to non-Islamic countries? That means less than 2% of all missionaries have gone into the Islamic world. You know why? They're scared. We're scared. I want to just tell you, Islam is the second largest religion in the world, and it's the fastest growing. That might, uh, that might need to wake us up, but that's, that's off topic. Let's get back to Exodus, the third chapter. While you're there, I want to tell you that Psalm 147, verse 3, says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We spend our whole life trying to make sure we get no wounds to protect ourselves, but this is the place where you first encounter His goodness. This is the place where you find out who He really is to you and not your mom or dad or your neighbors or some movie star pastor on TV. You find out who He is to you. He's not the God who heals. He's the God who healed you. See, this is really the difference between knowing about religion and participating in life with the living God. When you tell me how great He is, I want to know in what way He has touched you. And all too often, we only have other people's stories to tell. Friends, Horeb is always a hog. It's always someplace other than where you are that requires you to go from here to there. So that you might actually say that Ahar or Horeb is at the end of wherever your rope is. You understand that expression? The mountain of God is the place He meets with you when you don't have anything left except an acknowledgement of Him. Well, how do you get from here to there? That's a difficult thing. And God will spend His whole life, your whole life, bringing you from here to there. Look at this next one. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So we have Moses who's become accustomed to his life in the desert. He's out there with the sheep and he sees something in the distance and he begins to go ahar. He goes across this thing. The place that he ends up at leaves him completely devoid of resources. Leaves him absolutely empty with nothing there except a strange sight that he wants to know more about. And when he looks at it, the first thing that he notices is that it does not need anything else. 
There is a fire burning in this bush, but it is not using the bush as fuel. It is not consuming it. There is no chance that it will ever be depleted. It simply is self-existent without any vulnerability. Friends, this is a comparison and contrast. What do you think he was doing out in the desert with his sheep? He was looking for water, looking for resources, looking for things. And he came to a place where he's staring at something that needs nothing to exist. Can you imagine what that must have been like to us? This has become a Bible story, but this was an actual man. And at what place in his life is he doing this? He's almost 80 years old in the one great thing that he tried in his life. To bring deliverance to the children of Israel trapped in Egypt. Ended up branding him a murderer, rightly so. And banishing him from a country. Have you ever been to the end of your resources? God will take you to a place where you look and you see. He doesn't need anything. He exists all by Himself. He is the ultimate. He's almost the opposite of what we are. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? Do you notice that is the question on his mind? I need resources. I need help. I do without. I'm vulnerable. I am weak. It does not seem to be. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. It's a unique thing. Ten times in the Bible, God calls a man's name twice. And all ten, it's a pretty important guy. Don't make God call your name twice. But if he does, you better pay attention. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Same words that Samuel would later say. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. One of the first things that God says to Moses is I've seen and I'm concerned. Have you ever wondered how you witness to people? At some place in your life, you became aware of God's concern for you. This is the same place we should start with anyone else. He said, I have seen and I am concerned. Nobody cares about your religious creed if you're not concerned about them. There is no place for doctrine when it's absent of any concern for your actual life. When God began to reveal Himself, He first showed that He didn't need anything. But He was concerned about what He saw in men's lives because we do need lots of things, don't we? Amen. Mm. I am concerned. What's that next little word right there? So. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up. <clears throat> Hear this. God becomes concerned. So what does He do? Concern brings God down to wherever you are. And then what else does concern do? It lifts you up. Uh, 
to where He's called you to be. This is the very heart of God revealed in these verses. It is the ministry of Jesus revealed in these verses. Although He was perfect and He needed nothing from us, He was concerned. So He stepped down into our lives out of concern for us to lift us up into His life. This should be the motivation for every Christian work of service. Maybe you do VBS because somebody asked you and you're worried that if you don't do it, they may not like you. But this is not the reason to do VBS. It's not the reason to take out the trash in a church or to cut your neighbor's grass. We do the things that we do because we are concerned about their welfare. And we want to step down into their situation, whatever it is, in order to bring them up into Christ's situation. So, oh, well, then we always have to minister to the less fortunate. No, friends, I want you to understand all human beings have such great need. We just are used to having trouble-free lives where you can't see it. When's the last time you said, hey, man, how are you? And the person said, crumbling inside. No, we lie. We lie constantly. We carry around shame. We carry around guilt. We walk into church services just wanting to endure them because inside we are crippled and don't know how to be made whole. You know, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke of a woman that went 17 or 18 years to one synagogue and had a spirit that crippled her and she was bent over, hunched over. 18 years going to the right place but never receiving the right thing. Either nobody cared there or she wouldn't let anybody help her. But Jesus stooped down to the woman who was bent over. And when He was done with her, He lifted her up and she was healed. This is the heart of God. This is the Sinai revelation. This is God saying, if you let me, I will show you the right way to live. I will be the fuel for you to live. He's concerned. And what was He concerned about? Their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the, ha- from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. When God sees... God acts. In each instance when He says, I see suffering, or here I see oppression, the next verse says something like, so I. When we see, we just observe. We talk about it. Man, did you see that guy get beat up in the parking lot the other night? Did you see that car crash? Did you see such and such? We even like reality TV where we can watch it all from the safety of our own living room. When God sees something, He becomes concerned and He acts. Christians are not people who believe and people who simply see. They are people who see and believe God wants them to act on His behalf. This is what it is to be led of the Spirit. It's what it is to be the hands of God. We see and so we must act. All too often the church has its head right in the sand. We don't see it. We don't know what's going on. It's not us. It's not our responsibility. It's someone else. We'll let the Chinese Christians or the uh, Indian Christians, they'll go do everything. Never mind the fact that we have 90% of the world's resources among us. 
we'll let everybody else do everything. Friends, God has seen your situation. He has seen your life. He's concerned about you. And so He begins to act. He draws you. How did you get here? Did you get here because uh, somebody put handcuffs on you and drug you here? I mean, I'd give them an award if they did. <laughs> That's probably not how you got here. You probably met somebody. You felt something. You decided on a whim, maybe. Maybe against your better judgment to show up here. And while you were here, you felt some kind of drawing. There was something unique about it, even though you may not have agreed with everything. This is God seeing and acting on your behalf. He saw their suffering, and what else did He see? He saw their oppression. Oppression is an interesting word in the Bible. It's lachetz. L-A-C-H-A-T-S. Lachetz. Lachetz is the same one that is used when speaking of Balaam's donkey. You say, well, what on earth does that have to do with oppression? Balaam's donkey did not want to go where Balaam was beating the donkey to take him. You can read this in, in Numbers. Do you remember what the donkey did? Anybody? Raise your hand if you remember. Natalie, what did that donkey do? He did. He spoke. But he did something else. He lechets. He took Balaam and rammed Balaam's foot up against the side of the canyon wall, crushing it. Wow. Lechets means crushing pressure. The living God was looking at His people's lives and He saw suffering and He saw crushing pressure. It's an amazing thing. I have known people that had never been beaten in their lives. They really have never done without material things in their lives. And yet, if you look in their eyes, you can discern a crushing pressure. It's as if at any minute the dam might break. In fact, you put just a little bit of responsibility on their back, even a small amount, and they do things that look almost suicidal. There is a crushing pressure, and it does not have to come from your environmental circumstances. Crushing pressure comes from an oppressive force that the Bible calls the adversary. And I personally believe way too many Christians are carrying around a downward, pressing, oppressive, crushing force in their lives when God Himself says, I see your situation and what I want to do is bring you up. Now if God wants to bring you up and the enemy is the adversary, what does He want to do? Bring you down. Bring you down. So we as Christians need to learn the things that are bringing down our walk. The things that are hindering us. The things that could never keep God from us, but often keep us from Him. We need to identify those things and deal with them once for all. Should have been done at the cross. But the reality is we carry that cross with us every day. So that anytime something creeps up that is pushing us down, when God is calling us up, what do you do with it? You crucify it with Him all over again. This is the Christian walk. There is no such thing as finality at the altar. I prayed and so it's all done. All you have to do is experience Christian life and you find out. By the way, Anybody in here only ever dealt with fear one time and they were done with it? I mean, because I want to write a book, I'll buy it. Anybody in here ever only dealt with depression one time and then it never came back? Never, never had to deal with it again. Insecurity. I know y'all have no problems along those lines, right? You never, never. I mean, you, you. When you got saved, insecurity went out the window. You never had it again, right? No. See, there is a constant. 
downward pressure, pressure on God's people. The scripture says, when faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. Well, the question is, how do we display faithfulness in these areas? If you're battling with something like depression, something like insecurity, something like fear, something like the person on your left and your right all battle with, what does it mean to be faithful so that righteousness can rain down? I think we find the answers here in Exodus. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. When God saw a problem, He announced it. He said, I see the suffering. I see the oppression. So now, I have come down to rescue my people. And then what does He do? He delegates the task to a man. Amen. My goodness. What happens if the man is not obedient? Where would the rest of the Bible be? Well, you wouldn't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy because Moses wrote them. Where would the rest of the Bible be? Where would the prophets have sprung from if there was no nation of Israel? Where would Jesus, what people group would He have been born to if there were, maybe it would have been Swedish, right? Could have remained neutral in every major conflict. Come on now. The world's Outlook, everything hinged upon the obedience of this man. God said, I have sinned, so now I send you. Well, we're comfortable with every message in America as long as the message is that we're blessed. That's what we're comfortable with. We're not comfortable with what we're supposed to do with those blessings. Why is God revealing Himself to Moses? He's revealing Himself to Moses so that He can send Moses. That was the point. The point was not so that Moses would go home and say, I, you know, I'm living my best life now. That was not the point. The point was so that Moses would understand God's heart. God was concerned for those people. A people that Moses had already failed. A God that Moses had already failed. And, and God says, I am sending you. Wouldn't the best question in the world be, why would you send a failure, Lord? Because that's the question on Moses' mind, isn't it? Why would you send me? I tried and I failed there. Lord, I, I, I'm searching all over the desert just trying to feed these, these sheep. Did you know I went a whore? <laughs> Did you watch that? I've gone from there to here. I'm at the end of my rope here, Lord. Friends, this is the place that our King uses people. When you're not at the end of the rope and He uses you, what happens? You end up with your talents, your strengths, being confused with God's glory. We say it's all for the Lord, but the reality is it's all for the Lord as long as we have a giant pat on the back. God takes His people to Horeb, the mountain of God, so that He can get them acquainted with His heart, free them from the distractions that are all around them everywhere else, and say, listen, 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 son. This is something I want you to know. I'm concerned about you. How often have we in Christianity gone to the latest message? How often have we bought the latest book. It's amazing the stuff that they sell. And all of it is absolutely free from concern for how our neighbor right next to our house is living. How can that be Christianity? Only in America can it be Christianity. And I mean, we're the best, right? I mean, we have all the nicest toys. We're bold, confident everywhere we go. 
where God wants people is at the end of their rope so they can hear His voice. This is why Jesus said the poor are rich in faith. The poor are rich in faith. You learn to trust God when you have no other option. Yeah? Friends, I want to encourage you to be vulnerable today. There are some things that we're going to do, and it could just be hokey and be a gimmick. Or you could learn what it is to get rid of some of this downward pressure in your life that is keeping God from bringing you up. You could learn what it is to go ahead and be at the end of your rope so that our God can turn your weakness into His strength. This is the beauty of the Gospel. Everybody who quotes Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame, you cannot miss this. Their weaknesses were turned into strengths. He didn't take their strengths and turn them into greater strengths. He took their weaknesses and turned them into strengths. The king of the universe appears to people like Gideon who are hiding in a threshing floor and says, Stand up, mighty warrior. You know? I mean, just like calling a fat guy tiny. Stand up, mighty warrior. He's hiding. Hello? He's hiding. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stands up and lays the absolute heaviest message upon all of Israel. And 40 days earlier, he was hiding for fear of the Jews in the upper room. Our king takes men who are at their lowest point, their weakest point, and he raises them up in his power to a place they could not reach by themselves. This is a mystery of the burning bush. It does not need fuel. It doesn't need your strengths. Uh, Bill, I love your voice, but it doesn't need your voice. It doesn't need Matthew's guitar. It doesn't need Jen's good looks. <laughs> the burning bush, the God that we serve, doesn't need anything. But He desires your participation. Yeah. This is amazing because there's two things that hinder the work of God in a big way. One is our inadequacy based on fear. And the other is our overconfidence. And we're meant to live in the tension between the two. He's only made you adequate in His presence. This is the mystery of the burning bush. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. My, my, my. I am concerned. I go down to rescue and bring up. I've seen the crushing pressure, the lachats. So now I am sending you. What should be the first question out of Moses' mouth? Well, whatever it should have been, let's see what it was. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Talking to the God of the universe. And he's saying, I've already failed. I've just wandered around for 40 years in the desert. And God's got a little surprise in the story. He's going to get to wander for another 40 years. This trip will be different. It won't just be a horror out at Horeb. It will have manna raining down from heaven. See, God never changed Moses' circumstances. I know in America we think when we get saved, what happens is God removes all trouble from you because that's what we think heaven is. Heaven is being surrounded by hell and having heaven smile upon you. That's what heaven is. Yeah, you look at the ministry of Jesus and tell me what He meant by foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. You tell me what he meant when he said if they treat the master this way. He went so far in John 16 to say there's a time coming when anybody who kills you 
will think they're doing a service to God. But we've turned all this into the gospel of blessing. Right? God wants us richer and richer and richer and happier and fatter and slower and more lethargic and more glued to a pew. That's what He wants. He wants us to be unable to leave the church doors because we are so swollen with pride and flesh that we can't go out and do anything. Is that really what God wants? No. I don't think so. But the popular church survey might suggest that. I mean, why did the prayer of Jabez sell so many books? I wonder. Expand my tents, Lord. Expand my tents, Lord. Expand. How about praying, Lord, bless that guy? Where is that? Well, that won't sell any books. That's where that is. Uh, I hope you're not already upset. Because the thing is, this only gets better or worse depending on where you sit with these things. The reality is that the Lord is a consuming fire. And when you encounter this burning bush, certain things start to happen to you. It's like encountering that serpent that Moses lifted up in the desert. It's like encountering the cross. When you begin to look into the burning bush, you start to see who the nature of God is and what you're not. Moses asked the wrong question. He said, who am I? What he should have said is, who are you? See, when we look at our inefficiencies, when we look at what is wrong with us, our sin, our weakness, how could anything get done for God ever? You will always be in the way. But thank you, Zeke, it is not about you. It's about Him. Did God say, Moses, you have seen my people in their oppression. You have seen their suffering. So you should do something about it. He didn't. He said, I have seen it. I have come down. I will rescue. I will bring up. So now I send you. This is an amazing thing because Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that we all confess, you see bumper stickers that say, the Lord Jesus Christ said things to us like going to all the nations, but not being done. 2% of all missions have gone to the Islamic world. 2%. That's an amazing statistic, friends. In a few decades, they say it may outpace Christianity and be the largest religion on the face of the earth. I have to tell you something about that, by the way. It is deeply satanic. If that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. Woody told you about Buddhism. He told you about Hinduism. And he told you from experience. Islam is deeply satanic. It's oppressive in every way. Muslim people may be good people. They may be God-seeking people. People ripe for the gospel. But Islam is an antichrist spirit. First John told us that the antichrist spirit denies Jesus came in the flesh. The incarnation, that He is the Word of God in the flesh. Islam denies that. Uh, First John tells us that uh, anybody who denies Jesus is the Son of God. Is an antichrist spirit. Islam denies Jesus is the Son of God. How about the crucifixion? Islam denies Jesus was ever crucified. There is no religious system on the planet that does all three of those things. Not one. But we're unconcerned with reaching. Wow. This message is not about Islam. Ultimately, it's about this question that Moses asks. When God goes to send him, Moses says, Who am I? I am... A flawed man. I'm a failure. I'm this. I'm that. Moses is having an identity crisis. Lord, you have sent me. 
you are sending me and you have picked the wrong guy. Who am I? Looking into the bush lets us know we are not self-existent. We are not perfectly capable. We are not free from flaw. It lets us know that He is all of those things. Do you remember a time when Jesus said when the Son of Man is lifted up, He'll draw all men unto Himself? Well, He does. The cross makes us look at something. It makes us look at a perfect man who died in our place. We're familiar with that. You, you people have been in church a long time. But it does something else. It makes you measure your life against His. Right? Don't little kids wear this on their bracelets? What, how do we say? What would Jesus do? Right? I was watching a movie the other day, and even the Hollywoods picked up on it. It's a joke. A kid in the movie Transformers tells his teacher who is about to give him a B and he needs an A to get a car. He goes, what would Jesus do? Trying to pressure the teacher to give him an A. We know inherently that when we're looking into the divine nature of God, we compare ourselves to Him. So Moses says, who am I? The mystery to Moses and the mystery to most Christians, even though we understand it, we don't practice it. It was never about us. It's about giving away your identity and taking it. A beautiful man, rich man, gorgeous, good-looking man. Somebody like Jennifer Mary, right? (laughs) Ladies, when you go to be that person's wife, your identity changes. You take their last name. You're known based on your relationship to them for the rest of your life. And the fruit that you produce carries that name. This is the kind of relationship Moses is about to have with the living God. Moses, it's not about you. It's something I've seen. something that I want to do. What stood in Moses' way? Did I hand out some things earlier? Yes. One at a time. Stand up, walk out front, name that, and pin it on that tree. Saints, listen to these words. Tell me if any of them are in your life. Actually, don't tell me. You just think to yourself. Shame. You think Moses might have been ashamed of what he had done in Egypt and been banished 40 years in the desert. No worth. beautiful all of the time, right? That's why you spend hours putting on makeup every day. You shop and pick up your clothes. You buy mirrors that magnify the smallest flaw in your face and make sure you cover it up because you always feel beautiful. You know what you have done. Abandoned. 
dirty and clean. Weak. Weak. Anybody in here ever thought they had really powerful willpower? I don't know what's wrong with those people who are hooked on drugs, those people who have alcohol problems. I don't know how they, why don't they just stop? Have you ever had a sickness with a cough? Could you just stop? Guilt. Guilt. Nobody's ever wrestled with that. Sometimes it's tangible. Lonely. Lonely. Be surrounded by everybody but connected with no one. Unworthy. The Lord said, I have seen this problem, and so now I am sending you. And Moses says, Who am I? Can you imagine? Then in Moses' mind, many things, just like the things we pinned to this tree, might have been coming to mind. The question is not, Moses, who am I? The question, Lord, is, Who are you? Is it my arm, my strength, my character, my power that will bring deliverance? Or is it your strength, your arm, your character, your power? Do I operate in my name? Or do I operate in your name? Am I your ambassador? Or am I your master? This is a question the church needs to answer. We say that He is our Lord, but then we do not do what He tells us to do. And when we face these moments, we convince Him that He cannot use us. It needs to be someone else. How many of you believe Jesus can do anything? Raise your hand if you believe Jesus can do anything. Here's the next question. Can He do it through you? Does He have the right, having designed you, to use you any way He wants? Because this is what Moses is wrestling with. And I think Moses is not alone. Charlie, what I want you to do is go talk to this guy in this parking lot. Charlie goes, yeah, but I don't know him. Who am I, Lord? Terry, what I want you to do is go pray for this woman. That's, but I'm not a pastor. Irma, what I want you to do is go put your hands on this person and tell them you're proud of them. But Lord, they'll think I'm crazy. All these are who am I statements. Let's examine who you are. What does the Bible say about you? The Bible says that you're seated in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 2.6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. So tell me, can you feel abandoned if you're seated with Him in the heavenly realms? How many believe that the Word of God is actually the Word of God? Do I have anybody in the room that is brave enough to say, No, I don't think this is the Word of God. At best, it's just a fictional story. We'll give you patience and time. There was, a, there was a place in my life where I wondered about these things. But I've come to a place having experienced the Lord that I know that this is the Word. Well, then it comes down to do you believe you're seated in the heavenly realms or not? How about this one? Romans 8.14 Because those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. If you're a son of God, can you be a failure? No, probably not. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery is that through the Gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Can you be an heir with God's Son Himself? Be co-heirs like that? 
And God have forgotten you? No. But don't all of these feelings creep into us at times? Yes. You see somebody get married and you have been waiting years for God to bring you your spouse. You feel forgotten. Overlooked. I've seen it. All you've ever wanted was praise or admiration from an authority figure. And you've been denied it your whole life. But the guy next to you, he's getting it left and right. How do you feel about those things? See, in Christ, we learn not who we are, but who He is in us. His Word has to define us. You keep going with these, you find out that you're clothed with Christ. You find out that you're the righteousness of God in Christ. That you're full in Christ. There's no place for powerless, powerlessness if you're full in Christ. A participator in the divine nature. How can you be corrupt or dirty if God's divine nature is in you? But these are the things that keep people from participating. They're the things that keep us from uniting. Their fear, their insecurity. They're the devil, friends. You know what all of these things are? They are an oppressive weight from the adversary where God says, I'm taking you this way, and the devil says, no, you're not. I'm going to push down on you. Except he doesn't show up with his hand to do it. He works in the ten inches between your heart and your mind. This comes down to do we believe God's Word? Do we cling to it? When faithfulness springs up, Righteousness looks down. Faithfulness is sometimes believing what God said about you. You know why Moses should know that he can go deliver the Israelites? Because God told him to do it. He moves on from his question. He moves on from the question of who am I? By the way, God doesn't answer that. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. The answer to who are you is God is with you. Yeah. So why can you go do this or that? You know, I have been told as a storefront pastor many times, what qualifies you to do this? Or what qualifies you to do that? It always brings an interesting smile where I get to decide how I'm going to answer that question. Ultimately, what qualifies me to do anything is the same thing that qualifies a man with or without a PhD. Either God is with you or He's not with you. Anything that you think you do because of your education, your talents, your, 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 never met the mountain of God at Horeb because it's a horror. It's on the other side of where you're at. It's at the end of your rope and the beginning of His ability. This is what qualifies us. I have met God at the mountain. I have found the end of me in the beginning of Him. The problem with saying that is that the end of you is never actually the end, is it? He walks around with you. The dead guy still talks to you. He still says, you're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. If they knew what you... And all of these things are a downward suffering, oppressive force designed to do one thing. God said, I have seen, so now I send you. It's designed to keep you from doing what He called you to do. Let me ask you, did David have a lust problem? Yes. Did David have a violence problem? Yes. Did David have a lying problem? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Do you think that there were any times in his life David had a guilt problem? Oh, yes. How about a shame problem? Yes. 
Could he have felt abandoned when his child died? Why else would he write, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But at the end of his life, he's declared to have a heart after God's own heart because the book of Acts says he did what God told him to do. In other words, it was not about who David was. It was about who God is. In Exodus 4, picking up in verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is your name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Hey Jennifer, come back here. I am has sent you. When answering the question of can I do it? Should I be the one? Who am I to go do this? Who am I to go do this? The answer is the one who needs nothing, the one who is not in a bind, the one who is not short of any resource, he is the one who told me to do this. The way we solve this identity crisis is we look into this burning bush. You can light that on fire. We begin to let our fear, we begin to let our insecurity, our guilt, our corruptness, our shame, all of those things begin to get swallowed in the very presence of God, not because you deserve it, but because He didn't need anything you had in the first place. He knew who you were when He called you across the desert. He knew who you were when He caused you to come to His mountain he knew who you were when He spoke to you out of His divine presence. He wanted you to look into this flame and see that the very best that you had would all burn up. But He never would burn up or out. The King of the universe picked the most corrupt, fallible, broken, of all vessels, the first one to actually yield to the enemy, to be the victor over the enemy. How many of us know that our old nature was crucified in Christ? Say amen if you know that. Amen. amen. How many of you still need to light it on fire every now and then? Amen. Friends, it's going to hell anyway. The all-consuming power of God has need of nothing that you have. But He does want something from you. If God needed Brandon, if He needed your sinless perfection, would you have anything to offer? Steph, if what God needed from you was absolute righteousness, could He use you? Think about these things, saints. Every one of us, our very best that we have to offer in comparison with Him is as burned up as that bush. But God, the self-existent, all-powerful, He never burns up. He is never without. There is never not enough fuel for His fire. Ever. So why would He ask for you at all? Why didn't God say He was going to rescue him? Why didn't God just go rescue him? Hmm? Why didn't God just go rescue him? 
about the psalmist when he says, What is man, O God, that you are mindful of him? He is but a mist here today and gone tomorrow. Why did God not just go rescue them? Our King has always desired to use human beings as His hands. So when God says, I will rescue them, He appoints a man and says, You do it. Look at Exodus 4. You've seen fire before. In Exodus 4, look at the first verse. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? What if they do not believe who? Me. What if they do not listen to who? Me. Friends, what does me have to do with it? The mission was never contingent upon Moses doing anything other than what God told him. Well, it's easy to see when it's Moses. But how often do we calculate the cost of our obedience? How often are we standing there saying, Lord, if I do what you told me to do, it might not work out right. Because what you don't know, Lord, is that I don't speak well. What you don't know, Lord, is that I don't sing well. Lord, what we haven't talked about is you don't know what I did last summer. That was intentional. <laughs> See, we get in the way of our obedience to God, but we are never in the way of what God wants to do. Another way to say that might be like this. You might be an obstacle to you, but your inadequacies are never an obstacle to Him. Do you know why? He doesn't need anything. This is how the revelation begins. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your good looks. He doesn't need your wealth. He doesn't need anything. It is our pleasure to be used by Him. It is our chance to share in His glory. To be used by Him. But He doesn't need it. So nothing that you don't have, nothing that you've done should disqualify you from doing what He's told you to do. Obedience is not contingent upon your self-evaluation. But you don't know how many times we've seen things like, brother, you were called to be an elder. Yeah, but this and this and this and this and this is not right. Well, get it right. Come be an elder because that's what you're called to be. Well, I, I, I just, uh, I, I, I'm sick of hearing about you. Is he big enough or not? Well, yes, he's big enough. All right, let's get it right and let's move on. Yeah, but but, friends, the kingdom is paralyzed because the Moseses will not go because they're focused on me rather than focused on him. Come on now, do you know what I'm telling you? This is how we have created for ourselves superstar pastors that we lift up and my pastor is better than yours and then my pastor is this and that and that. It was never supposed to be the pastor's glory. You know what the pastor's supposed to do? Prepare you to go to work. Amen. The sign of a successful pastor is when his people are ministering, not when he's an eloquent speaker or when he has the largest crowd. In fact, the largest crowd should mean that he has the most active congregation there is. Somewhere along the way, we've let things like, I don't feel pretty. I don't feel smart. I feel dirty. I feel uneducated. I feel this, 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 this. Contaminate our obedience to where it's only partial. 
if it's there at all. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it to the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And he ran from it. It's an amazing thing. This snake is so many things in the Bible. In this case, one of the ways to look at this and something that I think is probably an edifying thing to point out is that a staff was the righteous requirements of God. It's a standard, like a ruler. And a shepherd could hold it up. And he held up the righteous requirements of God and when he threw it to the ground, it became the very symbol of sin. Later in the story, we find out that he lifts, he picks it back up and it becomes the righteous requirements of God again. Does that sound like anything? Does it sound like the Son of God who knew no sin but was made to be sin for you and then was taken up in righteousness? This is a, a beautiful picture of Jesus. But the other thing that it is, is it is also actually just a man who throws down a stick. And when he sees what God does with it, he runs. Why does he run? He's fearful. He's vulnerable. He knows what it is to have weakness. He knows he can be hurt. He knows he can be damaged. You know anybody like that? If I reach out to them, they might reject me. If I, if I go do this, it hadn't turned out well the last 10 times, the last 15 times, maybe I should be more guarded. Maybe I should keep a distance from anything that might hurt me. We run from the very thing that God is doing. And what does God say to him? You look in your Bible. What does God say when Moses runs from him? Reach out your hand. Moses, overcome what you think about you, your fear, your weakness, your inability. Remember, it's not about you. It's a, And I am telling you, reach out your hand. What happened when he did, Brandon? It turned back into something that would not hurt him, but did glorify God. I'll tell you a little hint. The next one is, Moses, stick your hand right into your cloak. Now pull it out. Moses, what do you see? Well, I see a hand that's leprous, Lord. This is what we always see when we look at our hand. We see something that cannot be used. We see something that God should have picked someone else. Okay, Moses, I understand that's what you see. Put it back in your cloak. Now pull it out. What is it? It's perfectly pure. It's like a baby's hand. It's white as snow. Yes, Moses, I am able to take snakes and turn them into the righteous requirements of God. I am able to take a leprous hand and make it whole again. I can use you. The great trick is these are signs for the Egyptians, right? I mean, these are signs for the Egyptians to believe Moses. These are signs for the other Israelites to believe Moses. But you know what they are also? Signs for Moses. Yeah. All of them are Jesus. Jesus is the very hand of God that was whole, beautiful, pure, and it stretched down into humanity and was made to look like it was leprous, look like sin, it was actually crucified, but then it was brought back to the Father's side and shown to be resurrected and holy and righteous and pure. The whole miracle of the incarnation is that God can use a man. 
the whole beauty of having a high priest that is a man is that he understands your weakness. He overcame it. You didn't. He is self-sufficient. You are not. He is like the burning bush, a limitless, exhaustless supply of power, and you are not. This is why we must lose ourselves in Him. It's not, the question is not, but who am I? The question is, who are you? I'd like to focus on something here. In Numbers 21, which you don't have to turn to, Jesus also mentions it in John 3. Israel was being eaten by snakes. Do you remember this? They grumbled. They were impatient. They called the manna that they had detestable food. They even compared where the Lord was leading them to Egypt. Said that God had brought them up out of Egypt only to die. God is never taking you up to kill you, friends. He's taking you up to elevate you. He's taking you up to show you a better way of life. And I, I personally, it just grieves my heart to hear people talk about all the things that the Lord has done to them. It's so hard. The Lord's never been anything but good to you. You may just be like a spoiled child that don't know you needed this man. But He's never been anything but good for you. You know, there's a real perspective problem. And anybody with children understands this. I put a hat upon Judah when he was about two years old. And the hat was called Old Navy. It happened to be blue. He said, Judah, that is an old Navy hat. He says, no, it's not, Dad, it's new. I said, Judah, that is an old Navy hat. What I'm saying is the name of that. He goes, but Dad, it's a new hat. He couldn't see the words on top of the middle were Old Navy. But I was his dad and I was above him. And I could see what he could not see. This is what our Father is always doing with us. He's saying, I can see what you cannot see. Get your eyes off of yourself and on to me. Like a pilot and an air traffic controller. He says, you listen to my instruction. I will take care of all of the instruction. Your job is one. Be obedient. Friends, these are easy things to preach. They're easy things to preach. When Israel is being eaten by these serpents, they had one job. The job was to look at a bronze pole, a bronze pole symbolizing judgment. And on the bronze pole was a bronze serpent, again, symbolizing judgment for sin. It was lifted up on a suffering stake. And the people would glance at it. And when they glanced at it and desired of the Lord, turned towards the Lord, Staring into that pole was like staring at the bush. It was like staring at the cross. It showed you everything that you were not. And everything that God was. So you could deal with the who am I question. The answer to who am I is dead. Nobody. The question, the answer to who is he or who are you? He is my very life. I am clothed in him. He is my being. It's never been. What we have to bring to Him is snake bit. But what He has to bring to us is healing. He has seen the suffering and oppression of His people, so now He has come down to bring us up. But like a lifeguard trying to save a drowning person, He catches the beating. Sometimes we want to view ourselves that way. We've practiced self-mortification so long that we don't even know how to receive the blessing. We fall back into things like, this is just the way that I am. 
We need to focus on the I am, not who you are. Of all the things God could have named himself, why I am that I am, he doesn't need anything. Turn with me to Isaiah 61. I'm not there. I got a new Bible. Let me ask you something. When we hear this very familiar passage, I need you to be able to do something. I need you to peel away the contempt that comes from familiarity. Now I know none of you hate Isaiah 61. I know none of you would consciously think, I don't want to know what it means. I know none of you would go, oh well, you know, what a stupid verse. I've heard it many times before. And yet, because you know the next words that are coming, it is easy to not let them penetrate your heart. In Isaiah 61, which incidentally is how Jesus announced His ministry, He said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. That's like God saying, I'm with you. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now in America, when you think of poor, you think of people that lack some kind of resource, right? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Everybody lacks resources. There's no human being that is like the burning bush that has inexhaustible resources. I would like to submit to you that poor is not making less than $20,000 a year. I'd like to tell you that poor in the first century was that your lack of resources meant something. Here's what it meant. The Roman tax collector comes by. You don't have the resources to pay him. So what does he do? We might take your daughter with him. That's poor. You know what poor is? Poor is, I do not have the money to afford a physician and my child is going to die tomorrow if something's not done. That's poor. We think poor is I have to collect food stamps. I don't even do that anymore. I need a food stamp card. Right? Poor meant powerless in the ancient world. Poor meant vulnerable in the ancient world. Who is the first group of people that the gospel is for? Powerless, vulnerable, oppressed, poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. In the Bible, your heart is the center of you. I've been teaching on this off and on for many years. It's the core of who you are. Friends, we have this phrase in English, oh, she broke my heart, or he broke my heart, or... If you're a Billy Ray Cyrus fan, we'll pray for your forgiveness later. But he had an achy, breaky When the Bible says the brokenhearted, to bind up the brokenhearted, it means something at the very center of the core of who you are. It's been fractured. And it's not working properly. Are we beginning to get a picture here? Something in there got arrived so that you don't relate to the world as God intended you to. When you read the Genesis account about filling the earth with the goodness of the Lord, you're content to just settle for a good life. 
which is free relatively from hostility. And you have enough food to eat and a bed to go to sleep in. Good is always in your best. Something's broken inside because God created you to spread His goodness everywhere, to fill the earth with it. But we've settled for something less because something's broken. The gospel is for those who are oppressed. It's for those who are poor. It is for those who have something broken in their core. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives. Captive to what? Well, you might be able to see the bars on your prison or you might not be able to see them, but they are there if you are unable to do God's will when He says to do it. You are a prisoner. I said, but you don't understand, Eric. I've been saved for years. I've been to the cross. I've done all of these things. Look, I think most of what people call deliverance ministry is a ridiculous joke. That's just our honest. I think most of it is a strange dominance ritual of some kind. But where Christians need to be delivered, friends, is in the purification of their identity. It is in the letting go of strongholds and baggages that have been left in their lives that should have been burned up at the bush, but somehow or another made it all the way through the cross. And it's still there telling you who you are. Still telling you what you can't do. God said, I have seen their suffering, so I am sending you. And the question still to this day is, but who am I? It cannot be. The Gospel was sent to announce to you good news of who you are. To proclaim the year, I'm sorry, and release from darkness for prisoners. You need to know that if shame, guilt, insecurity, dirty, corrupt, feelings of not pretty, feelings of inadequacy are a part of your thought life, you are captive to something that is darkness. It is the adversary's tool pushing you down while God is trying to bring you up. This is why they were in prison. This is why they were broken. This is why they felt poor. Everything else is just the results of that. You can have nothing and possess everything. Poor is not about your environment. In fact, when God makes men rich, He causes them to go ahar get to the end of their rope so that they can possess everything that is important. The knowledge of who God's called them to be. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Am I the only one in the room that finds that a strange statement to put these two things together? We're going to proclaim favor, Charlie. Hey, JJ, by the way, it's a day of vengeance of our God. Could I be talking about the same day? Oh, yeah. I want you to understand that somebody has hurt you. If there are things in your life that were never properly accounted for, something that causes you shame to this day, there is a day coming when the Lord will set everything right. The reason that the poor hear this message and they're excited is I don't have to carry any grievances anymore. I don't have to carry hurt, anger, bitterness, insecurity, jealousy for two reasons. One is the Lord is changing my identity. And the second is, those who don't receive Him, there's a day of vengeance coming for them. 
I don't have to keep scoring. All I have to do is do what he tells me. The writer was so caught up with this thought, so excited about this thought, that the Holy Ghost anointed him to say these words. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To bestow and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. I would like you to think about this burning bush for a moment. When you encounter the divine, something should be happening. Encountering him lets you know all the things that you're not. It lets you know all the things that he is. But when you leave there, here's what Isaiah said you're doing. You have brought to him your ashes, that which can be consumed, that which is dried up, arid. You came to him at Horeb with nothing of worth. He said, it's okay. I didn't need anything from you except your obedience. I will take from you your ashes and in the greatest exchange in history I will give you something beautiful. You can be known by my name. You can choose to identify with your ashes all of your life or you can go in my name as my ambassador and set my people free. And how do you set them free? You let them have their own burning bush, cross, serpent on the stick experience. They realize everything that they're not. Everything that God is. And then offer their ashes to the Lord. And He makes them into something beautiful. You don't have to keep track of your flaws. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring conviction. You have no such job. And all too often we have slipped into self-condemnation to prevent our obedience, friends. What is in the way of the submission mission? Me. The king of the universe has dealt with the adversary. He personally contended with him. If you read Samuel 22, he gave him a beating that a red-headed stepchild would long for. It's us who does not move. And what is beautiful, these ashes my wife took for just a minute. And this is a good example. What had no merit, no worth, nothing of value, suddenly becomes beautiful with eyes to see. And all of a sudden, you're the flower that God intended you to be. It's as if He gives life to the breathless image. It's as if He could take, I don't know, something like dirt and blow into it living being come out of it that could fill the earth with God's goodness. You were dirt when He found you. You had nothing but ashes to offer. But that is not who you are today. Because He is with you. He has taken your ashes and He has given you something beautiful. Don't pick them back up again. Don't carry them around. And don't shame His righteous name by concentrating on what you used to be or participating in it anymore. He gives beauty for ashes. Amen. Amen. Let us worship together for a little bit.